The title of this evening's message is Fruitless and Clueless. I couldn't hardly come up with a title this morning, but tonight I've had that one saved for a while. Fruitless and Clueless. And you can turn to John 15. We'll be reading there in a few moments, but I want to simply talk about some other things first before we get to that passage and, and we'll really wrap it up when we read that scripture. This morning, in looking at that very same passage of scripture, we focused on the very last phrase where Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And in focusing on that phrase, I emphasize three things about the new life that God has given to you as his child. The first thing I emphasized was that in order uh, to experience this new life, this new life depends on you staying very close to Jesus, living in a relationship with him. He calls it abiding, and we're going to spend more time talking about that in future weeks. We're even going to say a little bit more about it tonight. We also emphasize that your new life is not all about improving the old life. That he has an entirely new life for you that he has created in Christ Jesus, and he wants you to experience and live that life. And we are affected by the old life, but that is no longer your life. And you have been given a new life in Christ. And then the last thing I emphasize this morning is that your new life is not to be lived by imitating Jesus, but instead by simply surrendering your life to him. That imitation is one of the great reasons we get frustrated. And like the mouse that had the little bracelet, WWBD, what would a bird do? Uh, sometimes we're just like that mouse in trying to think that we can be like Jesus by simply imitating him. Living the Christian life, it has been said, is impossible. Only one person ever lived it, and that's Jesus. And only one person can live it now, and that's Jesus in you. So before I go into tonight's question, as we explore what it means to be fruitless and clueless, I wonder if you have a question or a comment about this morning and what we covered, or maybe anything that we've covered so far from John chapter 15. I think it's very important, probably from my vantage point, in terms of discipleship, one of the most important passages that we'll study as a church. Any questions or comments tonight? Okay, here's the question for this evening. How should church leaders respond to fruitlessness? And I'm going to take up both of the words in the title, fruitless and clueless. But I, I want to deal with the issue of what happens when church leaders, not just pastors, but pastors, deacons, Sunday school teachers, when they encounter a situation where they just don't see fruit. And fruit doesn't seem to be, be happening. How do we respond to that? How should church leaders respond to fruitlessness? Well, first of all, let me talk about the problem. 
of being fruitless. And again, we haven't really defined what it means to have fruit, to bear fruit. And again, that's another message that we're going to be doing, but let me just, let me just summarize it this way. What is fruit? When we get in deeper into John 15, we'll discover that fruit is simply this. It is the manifested life of Jesus in the believer. It is his character, and it is his work being worked through that Christian. And when his life is manifest, that Christian is bearing fruit. Do you remember what the fruit of the Spirit that's described in Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is simply a description of the character of Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit is at work inside a person, he's producing the character of Jesus. But not only that, he's also producing the works of Jesus Christ. And the things that you and I do and the things that we accomplish is also called fruit. But it's not from our efforts and it's not from our idea and it's not from our ingenuity and our power or our strength. It comes from the life of Christ flowing through us. So fruit is the manifested life of the Christian. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, as a church, we are living in a day and time where it seems that churches are having a hard time being fruitful. That as we look across our country, at least in the West, North America, we seem to be struggling with fruitlessness. And I have a graph. I update it every year. I keep hoping that the picture will change. But let me show you the last 17 years as Southern Baptist, a snapshot of our fruit. Look at this. These are baptisms in Southern Baptist churches since 1999. Do you see a trend? It's not a good one, is it? Now, we have more churches than we've ever had, but we're reaching fewer people. And there, there have been more than one task force appointed by Southern Baptist leaders to try to figure out what the problem is. And, in fact, there's one right now that's been appointed to study the problem of declining evangelism in churches and why churches aren't evangelistic, reaching out uh, to people who don't know Jesus. And so as you see that, that trend, there are exceptions as it, as it goes downhill from left to right. There are some years a little bit better than others, but last year, 280,773 baptisms, we rejoice with that. I'm thankful for when anyone is saved, but that's as few of baptisms as we had in the 1940s. It's been that long since that number was that small uh, during World War II. And so, and we had a lot of distractions in World War II, didn't we? I wouldn't remember. I wasn't there. But um, in contrast to that, if I could show you um, the early 1970s, we had a five-year stretch in the 1970s where something happened that's never happened before or since. We're from 1970, 71, 72, 73, 74, 75. We baptized over 400,000 people a year, Southern Baptists. And other churches were baptizing just as many. And one-third of those baptisms were teenagers or young adults. We've never had that high a percentage since. And we've never baptized that many people in five years since. And those of you who are around then, you'll know what that era was commonly called the Jesus people 
movement or Jesus people era, and many of us sitting here are products of that period of time. We were deeply affected by what God was doing in our country then. Well, we, we did have years where we baptized more than that, 1999, 2000, but we've never had a run of five years in a row where we've done it. And, um, and right now, that's, that's not even on our radar screen. We are, we are in serious. We should have a serious concern about that. So we are, if we are honest with ourselves, not only can we look at our church or another church or our association of churches or our state convention of churches and express concern, but it is a national issue. We are a barren people, and we're not seeing fruit as we would like to see it. Now, if this is going to change, where do you think it has to happen? Do you think it happens in a denominational office somewhere? No. This changes here. This changes here. It can only happen on the church level and ultimately on the individual Christian level. There has to be a shift in the heart. There has to be a change in the heart. And so the problem is fruitlessness, and we can keep doing what we've done. We can hang on to the past or try to create a new future. We can, we can do everything in our power to try to make a difference. But hanging on to the past, doing what we've done before, and to keep doing what we've done before, and thinking we're going to get a different result is called what? Insanity. That's right. So you can't keep doing that. But how do we respond to, the, to fruitlessness? Well, there's some confusion about that, and that's the second thing I want to talk about this evening. Confusion about how do you respond to this problem of not bearing fruit? This is the clueless part of the title, fruitless and clueless. We get confused. If the problem is a lack of visible fruit, then what we need to do is work on our fruit bearing. That's logical, but as we'll see in a moment, it's wrong. But that's exactly what we try to do as churches and as denominations. The plague of the American church right now is human-powered Christianity. We're seeing what we can do in our strength with our ability, our ideas, and our programs but we are not yet seeing what God can do with people who are surrendered to Him. We've tried everything as a denomination. We've tried revitalizing Sunday school in small groups. Um, not recently, but in the past, we have focused on evangelism training. We have focused on mission trips. The original idea behind mission trips, when they were on the grow and introduced 30 years ago, was that if you could get your people, and this is a message largely to pastors, by the way, if you could get your people to go on a mission trip, and they would experience sharing their faith overseas, and when they came home, they would be more faithful to witness at home. But that has not been the experience of a lot of churches, has it? And, um, and so when I became a Christian right, after, right at the end of the Jesus People era, um, I think I was the last person saved in the Jesus People movement. I was the last one. And, um, and about that time that I felt called to ministry and I responded to that call, one of the things that was really important to pastors uh, 35 years ago was, was studying and learning about how churches grow and how, as a pastor, you could help those churches grow. 
And it was called the church growth movement. We just have different names for it, but we call it the church growth movement. And what you did was you looked at your, you evaluated the church, you looked at what a healthy church looks like, and you let that become the benchmark for the actions in your particular church. And so if a growing church had X number of people in the parking lot greeting people as they drove up, then that's what you had to have in your church if you were going to grow. If a growing church had a certain number of full-time staff members for uh, every, uh, all the active attenders, a certain number, then you had to match that ratio. In fact, Win Arn developed, developed ratios to help churches know whether they were strong or weak in a given area. Um, for every 100 to 150 active church attenders, you should have one full-time staff member. That's, that was the practical wisdom uh, then, and it still is today. And so the focus on church growth was to recognize that God wants all churches to grow. That was the belief and the conviction. And if your church wasn't growing, something was hindering the growth of the church. And your task as a pastor, your role as a pastor, was to be a growth agent and catalyst for growth to figure out what the problem was and to resolve that issue, much like a consultant goes into an ailing company and seeks to fix it. And I immersed myself in that. And I'll be honest with you, it's almost second nature for me to think like that. When I became your pastor at Wynn Baptist Church, there was no question in my mind that God had called me to serve here as your pastor. I felt his call just as strongly as I felt his call anyplace else I've ever, ever been, ever went. Clear, crystal clear. When I came, even while I was your interim pastor, I began to look at some data. What was happening, what wasn't happening in the church in terms of numbers. I saw some things right away that concerned me from a church growth perspective. Volunteerism was relatively low. You say, well, Pastor, how you can say that? I, I know all kinds of people that volunteer. Well, you're the ones that are here tonight on Sunday night. A lot of you volunteer. But over half the worship attendance at Wynn Baptist Church at that time was not serving. I haven't checked those numbers lately. But we looked, we counted up every volunteer in every position that we possibly could, and we discovered that over half of our attendance was not serving somewhere. Well, from a church growth perspective, that's a problem. Because if, if a person volunteers to serve, uh, practically from an organizational perspective, if you can get their heart involved in service, uh, their pocketbook goes along with that, their, their motivation goes along with that, their faithfulness goes along with that, their involvement goes along with that. In many cases, their spiritual growth is tied to that. And so volunteerism is important. And that's why you'll hear me say from time to time, if you have a Sunday school class, one of your goals with your Bible study group is to give everybody a job in the class. Everybody needs a job. And it should be a job that they are excited about um, and where they're serving. So as I think about that, that was something I looked at. I looked at what was happening with the Bible study. In the years before I came, the, the average attendance in Bible study had declined a very significant number. And just about the time I started serving here full-time, I went and interviewed some of the people that used to attend that no longer came. 
and uh, learn some things about our Bible study groups and the quality of relationships in our groups. Felt very strongly they needed to be strengthened, that we need to focus on fellowship, relationships, things like um, the free-range fellowship that we do. Those are important to the life of our church. It's a time where you can sit down at a table with somebody you don't know and get to know them by enjoying a piece of chicken. And that's, that's, you don't think of that as being a spiritual activity, but I think it's very spiritual and uh, very important to the life of the church. Um, when I came here, and we're still facing this today, with all of our Bible study groups in one hour, there's very little room for individual classes to grow or to start new classes. We're dealing with that. We continue growing with our existing setup. And so we're challenged by that. That's not a bad problem to have. That's a good problem to have. But one of the things I, I led us to do early on was to add a second Bible study hour. Some of you have heard me say that if I had it to do over again, I would have waited. Not because it was the wrong thing to do, but because as a church, we simply weren't ready to do it. Um, most of us didn't see a need for it. It didn't bother you. wasn't a concern to you, and so I pulled the string on something that nobody wanted to do. And I heard about it. You know, it's kind of like being a football coach. Right, Van? Uh-oh. You know, you do the right thing, and not everybody appreciates it. And, um, and so I've, I've said before, I've said it openly, I've said it to our deacons, if I had a do-over, I would wait until people were screaming for space and said, I, I've got to have more room in my class, or, or we've we're got to start a new class. But, but people aren't saying that. Uh, very few people are saying that. And so when I look at, looked at Wind Baptist Church for, for the, some of the early stages, I was looking at it the way that I had looked at churches in Arkansas for 10 years and traveling from place to place for 10 years, 45,000 miles a year in Arkansas, um, visiting with pastors, visiting with church leaders and saying, we're stuck, we're stuck. And what do we need to do next? And so I approached some of our, our challenges as a, um, as a consultant, as a specialist, but not as a pastor. We're still challenged in that particular area. It's Let's go ahead and back up to the baptism chart, would you, for just a second? If we want to impact those numbers, I believe with all my heart that that will happen as groups of you reach out to unchurched and lost people and win, or Northeast Arkansas. That that changes when as groups of people we go out and reach people. Now there may be some Billy Graham sitting here tonight where you can witness to anything, anytime, anywhere. But I have found that more people come to Jesus when Christians work together. And one of the best ways we work together is through our groups, our Bible study groups. Where no matter when they meet or where they meet, um, our groups are powerful. So I'm a big fan of our Bible study groups. I think it's the most important unit or gathering in the life of our church. Our worship's important, but I want to see us reach lost people. 
And there are 6,000 people in Wynn that are not attending church anywhere today. They weren't in church this morning. They're not going to be in church next Sunday. And they're not going to be in church two Sundays from now. And so if that's going to change, something needs to change. We have 22 adult classes in our church, which is, which is wonderful that we have 22 adult Bible classes. And, and our classes, as far as I know, are wonderful experiences. They're, they have wonderful fellowship with one another. They're, they're great groups of people. They love each other. They look after each other. We have great Bible study groups, and I have bragged about our church in that regard numerous times. Um, but let me give you a cold, hard truth. We're not very good in our groups of reaching out inside the walls of our church to lost people. Out of our 22 classes in the last year and a half, last 18 months, out of those 22 classes, 11 did not reach a single person from outside the walls of our church in 18 months. The other 11, it's kind of a mixed story. Uh, five of them reached one person each. That's a good thing. Another five averaged three people each. One class reached 16. But I, I desire and want to see all of our classes running on all cylinders. And I believed when I first came here that our classes were so warm, so inviting, so friendly, and so gracious that if we just opened the door a little bit, we'd be covered up as people would see Jesus in our groups. I still believe that, dear ones. I do. But God didn't call me to be a fixer. He called me to be a pastor. And he didn't call me to be a CEO of a megachurch or to administrate a megachurch. He's called me to be your pastor, a shepherd. And that's very different than what I've been talking about. Because pastors feel increasingly the pressure to produce fruit for an entire church. After a certain period of time, many of them are burned out. They have violated their families. They have violated themselves physically. They have done everything they know to do as a specialist or a consultant to make a difference in that church, and they reach the conclusion that there's nothing they can do. They've done all they can do, and I, I've heard those very words many times. I've done all I can do, Don. It's time for me to go. Would you share my resume with somebody? And there's not a month that goes by, I still don't get calls like that. The problem is this. We think we can solve the problem ourselves, that we can remove the barrenness of our churches or in our, in our own lives. The goal, we think, is to teach more, to try harder, to think smarter. So we've talked tonight about the problem, fruitlessness, we talked about the confusion, which is being clueless, but I want us to close tonight by talking about the response. How do church leaders respond to fruitlessness? And what we've described is a situation where in our country, increasingly, churches blame pastors for not producing fruit. And it's because of the attitude we have about what a pastor's role is. 
And so churches blame pastors. And because pastors have embraced and in some cases projected that kind of responsibility, own that kind of responsibility, we have pastors then that blame churches because they aren't producing fruit. And so you have pastors pointing at churches and you have churches pointing at pastors. Both of them are wrong. Listen again to the passage we read this morning, John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Quite a contrast to what we've been talking about. Bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. I want you to see a picture on the screen. I want you to stare at it for a few minutes as we, um, as we close. We think the solution is in trying to produce more fruit. That is not the solution, according to Jesus. In fact, what we are typically doing, if you look at that diagram, you see that red circle? You and I are the branch. And, and right there is where the fruit comes out of the branch. And typically what you and I are thinking we have to do, and, and, and if you don't think this, um, if you're not concerned with fruit, hang on, we're going to preach about fruit in a couple of weeks. What fruit is, and, and the Father is very interested in fruit. He said that the branches that don't produce fruit, he cuts them off, throws them in the fire. You need to know about fruit. And you may not be concerned about fruit, but you ought to be. And so we get concerned about producing fruit. We're not producing fruit. Enough people aren't being baptized. We're not reaching enough people for Christ. Our classes aren't growing. We're, we're not reaching our community. We're not populating the delta with people who are spirit-filled and who are part of the kingdom of God and part of the body of Christ. And we get concerned about that, so we say what we've got to do is produce fruit. And so we concentrate right there. What can I do to produce more fruit? And we think and we talk and we push and we discuss and we, we think with our determination we can figure out the best thing to do to produce more fruit. And we are frustrated when it doesn't happen. But did Jesus ever tell us to produce fruit? You go back and read that passage carefully, it's not there. Not once did he say, what your job is, is to bear fruit. That's your job, to bear fruit. Bear fruit. It's not there. What he tells us to do is go ahead and advance it once more. He says, look at where the branch is connected to the vine. See, it's not a fruit-bearing problem. It's an abiding problem. Because Jesus said, if you abide, you'll bear fruit. And so it's never about the bearing of the fruit that's our real issue. It's about abiding in Him. Again, we're going to go deeper with this. But problems with fruit bearing are always related to a problem of abiding. We tend to work on bearing fruit as isolated branches or even as clusters of branches 
while being disconnected and independent of Jesus. He said, without me, you can do nothing. He said that to the individual, but listen, that's also true of us as a church. Without him, we can't do anything. It simply cannot be done. And so tonight, if, if it was your heart, and like I said, typically this would be addressed to pastors, but, but one of the problems we pastors have is we want productivity, but we don't want intimacy. And Jesus said, I didn't put you on earth for the productivity. I take care of that. He said, I want you to be intimate with me. And if you will abide in me, if you will, will stay connected to me, if you will draw life from me, the fruit, which is the manifestation of my life, the fruit, I will, you will draw that life from me, everything that you need. You supply nothing. You cut that branch off, it's not going to bear fruit anymore. It can't. Because everything it needs to bear the fruit is not in the branch. It's in the vine. And so tonight, if I was going to bring this home to you as, a, as an individual, a fruit-bearing problem has only one solution. It's about abiding. And tonight, if you are struggling in a particular area of your life, and you're saying, I want to be like Jesus in this particular area, and I have tried, Pastor, I have tried, I have tried, to bear the fruit of Christ's likeness in this area of my life, and I can't do it. Where's your focus? Pastor, I want to be joyful. Where's your focus? On the fruit or the vine? Pastor, I want to be more patient with people. But where's your focus? We want productivity, but do we want intimacy? Jesus says, you can produce fruit. No problem. But you have to stay close to me. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. As we respond to the Lord over the next few minutes, I wonder how how you would evaluate your heart, where your focus is. You might have come here tonight, even as a Christian, you said, Pastor, this hadn't even been on my radar screen. I haven't worried at all about whether I was Christ-like. And dear one, you need to run to Jesus. You were not made to live independently of him. You can't be a daddy. You can't be a mama. You can't be a spouse. You can't own a business you can't conduct your life without Jesus if you're a Christian what he wants to accomplish in your life that's going to last for eternity can only happen if you stay connected and close to him are you close to Jesus tonight you walking with him are you in fellowship with Jesus? Do you find yourself turning to him? Talking to him? Not just in the morning, but throughout your day. Not just in a crisis, but all the time. Are you abiding in him? If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's the very first step to becoming a branch in the vine.
pastors and I are here tonight to pray with you. We would love to help you come to know Jesus intimately and personally by faith. He'll forgive your sins. He'll wash you clean. He'll change your life. But you've got to take the first step. We'll help you. We'll answer your questions. If you just need one of us to pray with you, we'll be here. We'll be glad to do that. You may just have a burden, incredible weight in your soul tonight. We would love to help alleviate that burden and pray with you about that. The altar's open. Pastors are here. We're not going to change that picture. People who are lost and not coming to Christ. That picture is not going to change. Unless God does a work among us.